Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Welcome again, cave dwellers, and thank you for joining me on another episode of the Neanderthal Mind. Today we sit down with Jeremy De Silva. De Silva. Jeremy, or Jerry as he sometimes prefers, is an associate professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College. He's a paleoanthropologist specializing in the locomotion of the first apes and early human ancestors, hominoids and hominins, respectfully. His particular anatomical expertise, the human foot and ankle, has contributed to our understanding of the origins and evolution of upright walking in the human lineage. He has studied studied wild chimpanzees in western Uganda and early human fossils in museums throughout eastern and south Africa. From 1998 to 2003, Jerry worked as an educator at the Boston Museum of Science and continues to be passionate about science education. Jerry is the author of the 2021 book, First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human. He lives in Norwich, Vermont with his wife Erin and their twins, Ben and Josie. Dr. De Silva has also been involved with some of the more recent history-making discoveries from Rising Star as well as the famous footprints of Le Tolly. He was it, it was an awesome conversation and an unparalleled education for me in Neanderthal cousins and early human ancestors. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I will see you on the flip side, cave dwellers. Hi, Anthony. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Awesome. Now, do you prefer Professor, Dr. Jeremy? Oh, Jeremy's fine. Oh, okay. That's, that's up to you. Yep. Yeah, works for me. Yep, yep. That's fine. Uh, I mean, first off, thank you so much for, uh, you know, for, for being willing to come on the Neanderthal mind. I, I greatly appreciate it. I really do. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. So usually I'll just start off with, which I'm sure most do, is just share a little bit about yourself with my, I call them my cave dweller community. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I'm a professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Um, I study the origins and evolution of, of bipedal locomotion, so upright walking uh, is what I'm fascinated by, uh, in all the ways that it, it made us human. Um, uh, from the very beginning, sort of foundational changes to our lineage right through Australopithecus. Australopithecus happens to be the, the kind of hominin that I study the most and I'm, I'm most fascinated by. I, I, uh, I think they, they're this magnificent uh, moment in our in our evolutionary history where yes. a lot of the 
uh, a, a lot of the things that ultimately we celebrate as human uh, are really taking root um, at that at that point in in Australopithecus. We're just getting the, the beginnings of those of those moments. So I um, I do a lot of work in Eastern Africa, uh, in Tanzania, um, at the site of Laetoli. Uh, I was there in 2019, the very famous footprint site, um, and we just had a a fun paper come out last week uh, on some new footprints, uh, or really a reanalysis of some old footprints uh, at the site. Um, and then uh, I also work with teams in South Africa uh, in those cave sites, uh, Malapa and Kromdry, uh, Rising Star, um, trying to figure out what was going on in the southern part of the continent uh, during the Playa Pleistocene uh, as well. Yeah, I've noticed on my, uh, like I can go on my analytics with my podcast and, and see where uh, people are downloading. And it's, there's a, there is a lot in Africa now, <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of people in Africa downloading the podcast. So there's oh, that's a lot of interest. Yeah. Yeah. Great. A lot that's of great. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. I, uh, man, I, I, it's, you know, you were talking about the, the significant discoveries. It's, it, it is amazing how many discoveries well I, I guess maybe how many are coming out now you know obviously yeah. they've been discovered previously but now that they've been analyzed and looked over and everything but there's just so many new discoveries you know coming out <laughs> into the open so now and it's many. just amazing amazing it, it really is it's such an exciting time to it, be it to be doing this science to be um a consumer of this information, yes. uh, to, to be a podcaster <laughs> talking about <laughs> yes. this information, I would imagine. Um, you know, I always tell my students that, that this is a relatively young science. Um, you know, that the, that the first discoveries, um, we didn't really know what they were, you know, in the 1800s. Um, we didn't have sort of a Darwinian framework for understanding some of those early Neanderthals. Um, and then it wasn't until 1924 that the first Australopithecus was discovered. We we don't even have a hundred years of Australopithecus. Wow. You know, many other many other sciences, um, you know, biology and chemistry and physics, they have these these astronomy. They have these deep histories that yeah. go back into the 16th century. Um, we don't. Yeah. So we're such a recent science, um, and it wasn't really until the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that the pace of discovery began to pick up a little bit as folks began to uh, figure out how to find these things. Um, and then uh, honestly, it wasn't until, you know, this century, the early part of this century that we really got good at finding these things. And of course that coincides with um, the application of ancient genetics and ancient DNA to the analysis of fossils, which has been a game changer in how we understand Neanderthals and the discovery of the Denisovans. And it's just, it's been amazing to work in this field in the last decade or two. Uh, and, and, and it's a humbling thing too, to realize how much we, how many new discoveries have been made that show us that we didn't have the story quite right. Yeah. <laughs> we had it, it was, it was grossly oversimplified. The story is <laughs> much more complicated. Um, which means there are going to be more discoveries to come yeah. um, that are going to show us that, that there was a lot more out there. Um, and the story was more interesting than I think any of us really appreciated. Yeah, I, I get into a lot of discussions with, uh, with the guests about, you know, how, and even I, well, so first off, I, I have, which I'm sure my community is tired of hearing about it, but I tell everyone, I have no experience 
in you know paleoanthropology archaeology none of that I, I mean i i went to school to manage hotels <laughs> but <laughs> but you know i just i've always had an interest in learning the psychology of us and you know yeah. i found out along the way that it's because of what our neanderthal cousins ancestors early humans did yeah is why we do what we to do today you know and uh yeah. so with me it's you know I, I got into the podcast to really learn you know i wanted to learn about it but also bring my 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 community my listeners along the way to learn as well you know so oh, i love that that's a great <laughs> yeah. origin story I, I that's fabulous it, yeah it's, my, it's my uncle also awesome. went into does hotel management yeah. um so so i yeah i had that around me growing up um <laughs> and uh yeah I, so i i I think that's true that everyone, everyone's interested in, in why we are the way we are. Yes. So, um, and so there, there are always going to be these entry points for paleoanthropology to, uh, to, to, you know, be one of those sciences that, that folks uh, gravitate to yeah. um, as they think about, you know, why, why am I the way I am? <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, and even in my description, like I, I always said before that, you know, it's, if you understand why we act how we do, it kind of makes you a little more understanding and, and, and really it wouldn't make you, you know, not, I guess, not so aggressive towards others if they have, a, you know, their train of thought doesn't follow the same train of thought as you. And, you know, I mean, there is a lot of uh, Neanderthal and early human biology behind it, you know, psychology behind it, you know, so. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for that, that, yeah. you know, understanding, um, you know, why, why we have sort of the tendencies we do. Yes. I mean, I talk to my students a lot about, look, we're mammals, we're, we're hominoids, we're, we're apes, uh, uh, and we're hominins, and that, you know, we're primates. And, and a lot of the, the things that we see in our cousins uh, are useful when we're trying to figure out why we are the way we are. Um, it's, it doesn't justify uh, some, of the, some of the terrible behaviors that you see in humans sometimes, right. but... Um, explanation and justification are two completely different things um and uh it's, it's important not to conflate them um but it gives you right it gives you some some sort of you know yes i agree with you i, I think it i think it opens your mind yes. a little bit to the variation in behavior you see around you and um and, and, it, and it allows you to recognize at least for me it's allowed me to recognize that the world's not very the world's not black and white um that that we exist on a continuum and there are nuances and and there are all these really fascinating interactions between our our, our environment and our genetic predispositions and things we've inherited from our ancestors combined with the the world we live in today um that uh that that lead to this this marvelous diversity of <laughs> of the human experience right yeah, yeah, um absolutely. and so I, I i love seeing it through the lens of of paleoanthropology yeah i think it's a it's a fun one so now the one the next question i actually had for you was when did your path into paleoanthropology start and how so really that's a great question um so I, I i've always been interested in science um even as a little kid i knew i wanted to be a scientist uh, either that or a center fielder for the red sox you know but that, <laughs> that didn't work out um so i went to college to study astronomy i loved the science of astronomy i'm really i yeah. I, I love uh historical sciences i love sciences that that allow you to sort of look into the past yes. um and when you look in the sky you're li literally looking into the past <laughs> you know because of how light travels um and so astronomy was my thing. Um, 
except I really struggled um, with the the sort of accelerated math classes and the higher level physics um, that you need to know to do astronomy. Um, and I ended up I ended up having to change majors, uh, which was a big disappointment. But um, you know, you eventually you know you take the path you're on and and you you I, I ended up finding paleoanthropology uh in part because i i dropped astronomy um i uh ended up with a degree in biology in animal physiology i thought i might want to go to vet school but but that didn't work out you know i didn't know what i wanted to do yeah, i was a yeah. I, I was a, you know 21 22 years old i had no idea what i wanted to do sure, yeah. um but i knew i loved science and I got a job teaching at the Boston Museum of Science, um, so uh, which is the greatest classroom in the world, sure, right? Yeah. You know, to teach in a science museum. And I fell in love with teaching science. Um, and uh, what I noticed when I was on the floor one day was that the Lyotoli footprints, uh, which are you know three and a half million year old footprints mm. made by Australopithecus in Tanzania, they were in the same exhibit space as our dinosaurs were. Right. And I thought, well, this is going to spread some misconceptions that yeah. people and dinosaurs <laughs> lived at the same time. You know, let, why don't we move the footprints into the human biology exhibit where there was there was uh, some discussion there about human human evolution and there was some hominid models. Uh, and my boss said, sure, but the first thing I want you to do is to go to the library and learn everything you can about human evolution. And I said, well, you know, OK, um, that sounds good. And, and I, you know, I. I had no idea that it was going to lead to a career. Um, <laughs> I read books by Ian Tattersall, by Don Johansson, um, and I got hooked. Yeah. Um, as they say, I, got, I, you know, I, I caught the hominid bug, um, <laughs> and I became just obsessed with these fossils and, and what they tell us about our journey. Um, but also, yes. I, I became very interested in them as individuals. That each of these fossils we find are are the remains of a once living, breathing, thinking thing that was a lot like us. Mm -hmm. um, and here we are with this incredible opportunity to, to tell their story yeah. um, based on the evidence that, that they've left for us. Um, and so I was hooked. And uh, <laughs> after a couple of years of, of still teaching at the museum, I ended up uh, starting graduate school with uh, Laura McClatchy, who studies early ape evolution uh, first at Boston University, and then I went to the University of Michigan uh, yeah. when she when she took her job there. Um, so that's where I, I did my PhD work. Nice. <laughs> that's that's crazy. Like you said, you know the the paths that lead us to where we are. You know, it's like with me. Like I said, I just wanted to learn about why we do what we do, and it led me to <laughs> you know our Neanderthal cousins and early human <laughs> ancestors. Right. You know, I never and honestly, I had those misconceptions as well that, you know, like you, you said, you wanted to move those footprints. Cause I always thought, you know, before uh, dinosaurs and cave, which I called them cave right. men at the time were, yeah. coexisted. <laughs> I always thought that, you know, that's right. I mean, in the, in those little, those little toy pot packs that I got as a kid, you'd get, <laughs> yes. you'd get the Neanderthal, you'd get the mammoth and you'd get the, the T-Rex, um, yeah. you know, prehistoric, <laughs> prehistoric creatures. Yeah. Um, but uh, of course, you know, the time deaths are so yeah, bad. so far um, apart. I, and I never realized that neither. I mean, it's millions of years apart. It's, oh, it's so it's much crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've only been doing it for about a year. And I mean, that's those are probably the most significant. Like, again, I even had the stereotype of them being just mindless 
brutes that you know <laughs> but sure. then you start thinking about it how they existed for oh you know millions of years possibly but hundreds of thousands yeah. of years they yeah. could not be stupid <laughs> that's right they could not be so that's right that's right and I, I you know i talk to my students a lot about uh imagining themselves and sometimes you know a couple of years ago we brought a class to south africa and we did a game drive at night um and uh, we got a flat tire uh, we had just seen a group of lions um, eating an impala, and uh, and then we get a flat tire, and it's pitch dark, right? And my students uh, commented to me. They said, "They said, wow, now I know what it must have been like to be, yeah. you know, an Australopithecus." And I said, eh, "Australopithecus, you know, they weren't sitting in 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 uh, safari vehicles, right? right? That's a vehicle when those lions with, right, wandering right. around." Um, <laughs> But they got that sense of just utter dread, yeah. you know, looking out into the darkness and not knowing where the predators are. Um, and so our ancestors, they had to be clever. Um, they weren't fast. Um, they didn't have the kind of, you know, weaponry that, that we have today. They didn't, uh, you know, before they controlled fire, um, you know, they still had to make it through the night. Yeah. Uh, and that was not an easy task. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, so they, they had to be clever. And cooperative. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 With the environment, with nature, everything. Sure. That's right. That's right. And each other. And, and I always talk to how, you know, with, in regards to weapons and tools, uh, I have a, a co-host now, Joe Lawler. We call him Neanderthal Joe. That's what his Facebook is. But <laughs> he does, great. he does all the flint napping by hand. I mean, he does it the way that they did it, you know, makes the tools and the weapons. And, yeah. you know, I always referred like, so our ancestors, our cousins, affected us biologically psychology but as well you know our tools our weapons came from that technology i mean you know everything we have kind of stemmed from obviously other than motor vehicles and airplanes but you know sure <laughs> but uh, yeah a lot of the things that we have had, had started back then you know so that's ex that's exactly right that's exactly yeah. right and and again that's you know one of the things that that i love about what i do is that we see these we see the beginnings of yes. all of these things that make us human back in our ancestors. Um, and we now have stone tools uh, that go back uh, at least 2.8 million. And there's a site that's 3.3 million wow. um, where there are uh, the, the, the beginnings of stone tool technology um, with Australopithecus. Wow. Um, that for a long time, it was thought to be the invention of early homo, that our own, only our own genus could do this. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and uh, no, it looks like Australopithecus with those freed hands wow, being yeah. bipedal, walking upright. Uh, those freed hands uh, can can create. Um, yes. And they, they started modifying stone uh to to solve ecological problems right how am i gonna how am i gonna get that marrow out of that yeah. bone shaft um how am i gonna cut that meat off that bone how am i gonna dig for that underground tuber um that that you know is starchy and, and nutritious yeah um they start they start modifying their world so you know humans do that all, that's what we do right mm. we we modify our environments to 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 suit our needs when we yeah. when we have a an ecological challenge we don't wait around for an actual selection to solve the problem <laughs> you know we solve it culturally yeah. um and that's that starts way back so speaking of bipedalism uh, let's let's get into your book first steps yeah. how upright walking made us human let's uh let's get into that definitely sure
yeah let's go for it what uh so oh. give us some sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> i guess no, i no alluded problem. that i had questions about it but <laughs> it was more of just opening the door for you to maybe explain you know uh what it's about you know give a uh, if yeah. you want to give a cliff notes about it or whatever it might be you know sure sure so um with with bipedal locomotion upright walking moving on moving on two legs uh th there are two really amazing and, 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 and foundational things about that. The first is that we're the only mammal on earth that walks this way all the time. Mm -hmm. There are a few other mammals that occasionally will experiment with, with bipedal locomotion. You see a chimpanzee doing it sometimes, a yes. bear will do it occasionally, uh, gorillas will occasionally do it. Um, but when, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a gorilla at the, the Philadelphia Zoo named Lewis, and Lewis would get up on two legs and walk on two legs, uh, uh, you know, every couple of days. Yeah. And a visitor videotaped this, and it made the CBS Evening News, <laughs> right? So when something we do every day, <laughs> another animal does, it's newsworthy, yeah. right? So so bipedal locomotion is is unusual in the mammalian world um, and yet here we are doing it all the time um, uh, as 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 uh, you know adults when, once you're you know a year and a half two years old uh, you know you're moving on two legs um, the other thing about it that's fascinating is that when we compare ourselves to chimpanzees and gorillas and to the other apes and we look at all the ways that we're different from them there are plenty of ways we're similar but we look at the ways we're different, our large brains, our language, uh, our reliance on, on stone tools or, or technology, which is you know, greater than what we see in chimpanzees. They're clever, but uh, you know, they haven't gone to the moon yet, for instance. Um, uh, our artistic ability, our, um, uh, our small canine teeth, you know, uh, and our bipedal locomotion. If we look at all the ways that we differ from them, and then we use the fossils, to go back in time and to say, okay, what is the order of events? What happened first? The very first change that we see in the fossil record, the earliest things that we identify as coming from our lineage and not theirs, hominins, um, they were moving on two legs. They started walking on, on uh, bipedally. So it's an unusual form of locomotion and it's ancient. It's the oldest thing. It's the thing that truly sent us off on yeah. this this journey this new uh kind of ape moving on two rather than uh, four legs mm -hmm. um so this new branch to the to the family tree because of how we move so it set in motion and it and it, and it laid the foundation for everything that comes later brains tools language those things wouldn't have happened i don't think unless you had an upright walking right. ape so that's what I write about in the book. Um, uh, the, the unusual nature of bipedal locomotion. Um, I, take, uh, I take the reader into the fossil record and we look at dinosaurs for a little while because some of them were bipedal. T-Rex was running <laughs> right. around on two legs, yes. right? <laughs> and of course, birds today are also mm -hmm. bipedal. You've ostriches and emus. And so they come from this long lineage of, of bipedal theropod uh, dinosaurs. But they were even... Um, uh, occasionally bipedal crocodiles um, that were roaming what yeah, is today North Carolina, yeah. right? <laughs> an, an eight foot tall crocodile wow. running on two legs uh, known as the Carolina butcher lived 245 million years ago. Um, there was a kangaroo at one point in Australia, a very large kangaroo. 
that didn't hop on two legs, it walked on two legs. Okay. There are even footprints of it wow. uh, striding along. And what's fascinating to me is that all of these experiments in bipedalism that we see, um, they fail. Crocodiles evolve quadrupedal locomotion. Mm. The bipedal ones went extinct. Uh, kangaroos are all hopping animals. The, the striding bipeds didn't make it. Um, and there are lots of other examples of these bipedal creatures that just didn't make it. Um, and yet here we are, seven and a half billion strong, right? <laughs> um, dominating, dominating the earth. So what's, what is different about us right. and our journey here? Uh, so I take the readers then into the human fossil record and look at the origins of bipedalism. Uh, we still don't know why bipedalism evolved. Um, we can count up all the advantages to it, freeing the hands to make yes. tools, to carry right. babies, seeing over tall grass. We're energetically efficient on two legs, even though we're very slow. Uh, there are um, uh, some hypotheses about heat dispersal yes. being easier on two legs than on all fours. Um, uh, but these all remain test, you know, for the most part, uh, uh, hypotheses that that are still still open that ha that haven't been refuted yet. Hmm. Um, we don't have the data yet at the critical time periods to know exactly why this was a selectively advantageous form of locomotion. Uh, there are plenty of colleagues of mine that are convinced they know why, um, <laughs> and uh, I don't think we do. I, yeah. I think it's still a great mystery, and that's okay. Yes, we can have absolutely. mysteries in science. We can have <laughs> things we don't know the answers to yet. <laughs> it leads uh, to other you know, discoveries, you know? It leads to different. You might be looking at one thing, right. but then you discover this thing about it, you know? That's exactly it. That's yeah. exactly it. So after I take the reader through the evolutionary journey uh, and how bipedalism shaped all of the changes that we see throughout the last six or seven million years in the human lineage, um, I then pivot uh, and explore how uh, upright walking actually impacts the human experience today. And so there's a chapter on um, how kids learn to walk on two legs. Um, you know, babies get along just fine on all fours, mm. um, crawling around and doing their thing. So why do they start moving on two legs? What is, what is the motivation? Um, <laughs> And what about the timing of it? Um, you know, it ha happens, you know, plus or minus about a year sure. of age, but that varies enormously from culture to culture. Um, and so there are lots of interesting cultural variations in how uh, upright walking is acquired. And then I get into the, the health benefits of it. Um, walking is, a, is a, a low impact and very, very healthy form of, of exercise. Um, that when we contract our muscles, there are molecules called myokines that are released into our bloodstream. Our, our muscles are endocrine organs, which is so cool. Um, and these, pro, these, these molecules get into our bloodstream and they target all the tissues of our body uh, and, and provide a number of health benefits, including to the brain. Yeah. Um, taking a walk helps with memory, it helps with creativity. Um, you know, if you get a, if you're struggling with something, what, you go for a walk. Take a walk, yeah. Come back stressing and... you out, just take a walk. Totally, yeah. totally. And Absolutely. so I, I dove into not only that that you know that connection, but but what's the mechanism? You know, as a scientist, I'm really interested in in what connects those dots. You know, walking and creativity. What is what is the mechanism? Uh, and the physiological mechanism are these really amazing molecules called myokines, um, and they're still being discovered. Uh, many are still being discovered by physiologists, uh, exercise physiologists today. Um, and then, uh, and then I explore uh, the downsides of, of walking on two legs and all the 
foot problems people have and the knee problems and the back problems. Oh, yeah. And I mean, we're a mess. <laughs> we are a mess. Um, yeah. And in part, that's because evolution doesn't create perfection it creates just good enough to survive to the next generation um okay and uh and so there's gonna be you know they're gonna they're, they're gonna be some bumps and bruises and we certainly experienced that yeah. as a result of being a modified ape you know walking <laughs> on walking on two legs uh yeah. and then i wrap up the whole book with a connection between <clears throat> um bipedalism and and what, what i think is um uh, you know, one of the most amazing things about being a human, and that's our, uh, our, our, our compassion for one another and our care for one another. Um, we can be awful to one another, and that story has been told, and people, you know, know that. But, but what's, all, what's not as appreciated is, is how good we are to each other as well. Um, that seems to just fly under the radar, much like walking does. And I think those two things are actually um, intimately connected and they go back to the beginnings of, of our lineage. Um, bipedalism makes us incredibly slow. It makes us unstable. It has all these downsides and yet here we are. So what Still were the benefits? <laughs> yep. And I think, I don't think it could have evolved unless it was evolving in an ape uh, that, was, that was cooperative. Um, more like a bonobo than like a chimpanzee. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. We'll see as we learn more from the fossil record from that time period. So why is not? I guess not off the subject. Same thing. Why mm. is it that we're more like the bonobos than the chimpanzee? Like what's what? Well, okay. I, I you know, and I'm going to argue with myself now. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I you look at the 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 events around world war ii and we're more like the chimpanzee yeah, well, right sure um yes. Yes. and so so we have we have both in us yes. um you know we we are we are situationally violent and we are situationally kind and compassionate <clears throat> and it depends on the situation but we have the capacity for both um yeah. and that story has been well told yeah. um what i what i'm drawn to are um fossils um here, I, I, it's better if I show you this. Yes. Um, so there's a fossil from Kenya, and this is just one example. Um, so this is a, a femur um, of, of an Australopithecus from Kenya. It's about 2 million years old. And it was discovered by uh, Richard Leakey's team in the 1970s. And what they noticed about it um, is that as you come down the femoral shaft, there's a bulge sticking uh, out on the inside of the femur. Um, this is not normal anatomy. This is not typical anatomy. Instead, this is the kind of anatomy that you find in humans today that have a healed fracture. Um, there's this wonderful, probably apocryphal story about Margaret Mead being asked, um, what is the earliest evidence of civilization of human civilization and her answer was a healed femur hmm. and Super the nice. argument there is is that yeah the argument of course is that is that because we're bipedal um you break your leg you better have help yeah right yeah. you're not going to be able to hop along and still survive 
unless there's some technology, unless there's some uh, uh, cultural or social buffer that's going to help you. Um, quadrupeds, a zebra, an antelope, a chimpanzee, they can break a limb uh, and, and that can heal and they can survive because they have three others. But mm-hmm. when we evolved bipedalism, we became incredibly vulnerable to injury. If you sprain an ankle, if you break a femur, mm. then you really shouldn't make it through the night. <laughs> you should be leopard food. Um, and the amazing thing about this fossil is that this is a healed fracture. Uh, it takes six weeks to heal a fracture like this. Huh. And so this individual, during those six weeks, they weren't out there foraging for themselves, right? right. Um, where are they getting their water? Right. So uh, my, my scenario of survival here is that they went into a tree and other members of their group brought them food um, and took care of them. So two million years ago, we have evidence for this. There's an even older fossil, it's three and a half million years old of Lucy species. Uh, it's a big male named, nicknamed Katanumu, which means big guy in the local language. <laughs> um, and he was discovered in 2010 by Johannes Haile Selassie and his ankle was all messed up. Um, and the researchers studied the ankle and they looked at it in comparison to human skeletal collections and it matched ankles that had healed fractures so again uh this individual broke his ankle he's a biped and he breaks his ankle and but he lives to be an adult wow he lives you know uh, quite a life um so those are the pieces that that to me tell a story of survival because of our cooperative nature, because of our compassion and our care for each other. Um, you know, we often think about natural selection as, you know, red in tooth and claw and we're out there and we're fighting each other. And of course survive, there's some of yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> but our story I think is one of not necessarily the strongest survives, but the most cooperative, cooperative. survive. Because it's a tough landscape for them to survive on. Yeah. And yet they did. Yeah, because we're here. <laughs> so they Correct. did. They yeah, they had right? to. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And I wonder, uh, even uh, and it may not be more recent one where uh, he had like a crushed skull and a you know one of his uh, maybe his right arm didn't grow or oh y'all no yeah. kidding yeah. Uh, I've got him uh, yeah yeah hold on a second <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> All right, I'm back. I'm Absolutely back. So love it. That's what I love about my lab here. Um, <laughs> that's the, the old man of Shanidar. Okay. Uh, so this is Shanidar, um, and he was discovered in Iraq in the late 1950s by Ralph Selecki. He was a uh, researcher at Columbia. And um, the old man of Shanidar um, has this, this terrible injury to his left eye orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that had been smashed in while he was alive, uh, wow. while he, you know, this wasn't post-mortem, right. it healed, um, but likely he didn't have sight out of his left eye. And then more recently, researchers have noticed um, this growth of, of bone, what we call exostoses, um, kind of nasty bone uh, that's growing around the perimeter of the, of the auditory canal. Yeah. Okay. So he likely was deaf wow. as well. And then his arm, this is, this is his withered up arm. Wow. 
um, <laughs> which, right, a humerus is not supposed to look like, like that. that. No. <laughs> um, so he had had a horrible injury wow. that would have severed his forearm and then it withered up his, his humerus into something that really wasn't usable. Wow. Um, but he survived to be an old man. Yeah. Um, so Neanderthals taking care of each other. And, and you know, this has been a controversial um, suggestion in our fields for a long time, what we call conspecific care. Um, and to me, the evidence is very clear. Yes. I, I, I don't understand why it's controversial um, that we do it. Um, you know, we see hints of this kind of thing in some of our ape cousins. And then when we see bony anatomy that that, uh, you know, could, could it just be, you know, that this individual got lucky? Sure. But when you see case after case after case of it is a homo erectus skull, for instance, that is toothless. And it was a toothless individual for, for many years, two or three years, this, this, this old man or woman, we debate whether the sex of this particular individual, mm-hmm. um, they lost their teeth. And then how do they still eat? There's no, no blenders, no, no yogurts or, you know, (laughs) so other, you know, other individuals likely were mashing up their food and took care of them. Um, It's what we do. Uh, So, so to me, it makes a lot of sense that this was going on in our, in our deep ancestry as well. Yeah. And that, that, I guess that takes me back to another conversation I like to have uh, is, so we, we keep our, I don't, I don't want to downplay what scientists, anthropologists, archaeologists, I don't want obviously I'm not doing X, I'm, I'm not nothing like that, but it's almost like, and previously, it, recently it's, 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 it's expanding, but the point I'm getting to is it seemed like the thought process was kept in a box as, you know, they did live in caves and they didn't mm. take care of their, you know, their uh, fellow Neanderthals or, you know, they didn't do this or didn't do that. And it's, it, you know, I always ask if we would have, looked outside that box how many more discoveries would there have been by now you know mm-hmm. and i mean mm-hmm. it's, it's obviously it's hard to answer but uh you know to me that's just you know it just seems like that would be yeah something that uh i don't know it's a, it's a great question <laughs> yeah. and it, it's a great observation um and you know there, there are a couple of ways i i think of it um i i, I think we you know, we fall victim to human exceptionalism sure. that, you know, that we are, we are special and look, we are, <laughs> we're, we're, we're having a, <laughs> a, a conversation right now uh, using extraordinary technology that, you know, our ancestors <laughs> hundreds had. of miles away from right. each other. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. You know, humans really are amazing. Yeah. Um, and we should be celebrated for the, for the ways that, that we're different um, from other animals, but other animals are amazing too. You know, yeah. bees do things I can't do. Oh, yeah. Dogs do things <laughs> I can't do. So we all have our our evolved, you know, specialities. And, um, uh, and, and so I, th- I think we've fallen victim a little bit to that of human exceptionalism that, well, humans can do it, but the burden of proof is on you to demonstrate that this was happening in these other creatures as yeah. well. And that's where, um, how you frame a hypothesis uh, comes into play. There, there's a, you know, in science, you, you need to have a null hypothesis. The null hypothesis being that there's no difference between you and, well, you and what? Um, and so if the null hypothesis is that these things couldn't do the things humans do, 
it's harder to then demonstrate that they could to disprove that hypothesis. If you frame the hypothesis that they could do what we can do, now show me, now, now, now disprove that hypothesis, right? Then your burden of proof shifts a little bit. And what you accept that they're capable of doing uh, changes a little bit. And, and our whole mindset of what they were like changes a little bit. Uh, and I'm seeing a shift in the field and it's happened a lot because of Neanderthals. Yeah. That even when I was a grad student, Neanderthal, the, the argument was still about whether Neanderthals, Neanderthals could talk. Mm-hmm. And now <laughs> no one argues about no. that anymore, <laughs> right? They're making jewelry. Yes. They're, they're, you know, burying their dead. They're interbreeding with homo sapiens. It's, a, it's amazing how human-like they've become and why? Well, okay, we found more evidence, yeah, um, yeah. but we've also we've also changed our interpretation of what we found in light of some of these genetic findings that that they interbred with homo sapiens. Oh. Um, that I think has really altered uh, our, our mindset. Um, and so that forces me to sort of think about, well, what else have we missed yeah, here? Right, right. Um, yes. What was Homo erectus doing that we didn't quite appreciate? What was Australopithecus doing that maybe, um, you know, we, we've overlooked? Uh, and I, th- I think it's a lot. Yeah. Um, and like you said, I, I, I've seen, again, even in the year that I've really dove into it in a sense, I've seen a shift, you know, where it's thinking out of the box more, you know? Yeah. So... It's yep. again, it's, and that's going to be even more exciting times and discoveries that come along, you know, <laughs> it is, it is. And it's fun. It's fun to think out this outside the box, but as a, as a good scientist, you always have to be willing to be sure. wrong. Sure. So you always have to say, okay, you know, I'm going to hypothesize this. And then, and then you collect the evidence and, and, and you, and you look at the, you know, the, 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 the bulk of evidence that's been collected thus far. Uh, and then sometimes you say, I was wrong. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's and it's okay as a scientist to 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 be wrong. Um, yeah. Some of the you know the scientists I admire the most in our field have you know changed their minds when yeah. when new data arises. Um, you know, in fact, Svante Babo, who's you mm-hmm. know does the work on the genetics, originally was I would love arguing to get that, him on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. he'd be a great guest. Oh um, my goodness, yeah, yeah. But he originally thought Neanderthals did not interbreed with Homo sapiens. Okay. But huh. then the data changed his mind. Yeah. And that can only happen if you have an open enough mind yes. to be willing to, to be wrong. Yeah. To be wrong. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. That, one of the other questions, too, I had uh, later on down was, and I brought this up a few times free or affordable access to scientific information. Like with me, it's hard mm. for me to get a lot of the information other than what I get through the news because I like, uh, I think re- research research something there's a there's a website that has a lot of papers on it but you have to be you know a professor or a, a oh. student or, and i can't get on to it you know they won't let me sign up to it which is that's fine but free or affordable access which to thing? me it's not fine <laughs> My, <laughs> look so i i come at i come at this as a as a as an educator in a science museum um you know that's my background i was a i was a science museum educator and so to me all of this needed to be accessible to the visitors that came to the museum that day, whether they were little kids or the grandparents of those little kids, I needed to take the scientific information 
um, that that was constantly changing, right? New discoveries being made and tweaking and modifying what we thought we knew, um, and to take that and to package it in a way that the visitors could understand and not only understand but be excited about. It's a science museum, right? It's supposed yeah. to be fun. So we would do these, you know, these 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 fun presentations and activities with with our visitors. But that can only work uh, if the if if the the findings are available mm -hmm. and if the fossil you know in this particular case with paleoanthropology if the fossils are available and so um it has never made sense to me mm -hmm. that my colleagues would find a fossil and then not share it with the world yes i, I just don't get it <laughs> um and i've heard the arguments uh, you know about uh, you know, the, the amount of time it takes to study a fossil. Yes. Sure. Take, take the time you need to study it and then make it available. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. I've heard the arguments about, but these are not ours to share because they're found in, uh, countries that, that may have these different, these different yeah. policies, sure. um, about sharing. Um, but there are now, there are now case studies out of South Africa that show when the fossil is, is shared more frequently you actually get more, more visitors yes. yeah. and more scientific research and yes. more people staying in your hotels and more people going to your restaurants <laughs> um and so those arguments fall apart um it, so so i i you know one of the fossils that got me into this science in the first place was sahelanthropus chadensis okay. which was uh I, here, I'll go get that. Yeah, one. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so, Sahelanthropus was is a seven million year old skull, uh, and a jaw was found, um, and it's from the Central African country of Chad, and it is uh, existing in time seven million, right? When humans and chimpanzees shared a common ancestor. Okay. And so, if you want to get a sense of what apes were like at that time even what a common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees may have looked like. This is your window into it. Now, there's some evidence from the skull at the very big, this is, this is the skull here, wow. uh, a replica of it. Yeah, sure. um, there's some evidence from the skull, from the base of the skull, uh, that the spinal cord came straight, straight down, down. Okay. which means that this could have moved on, on, two, on legs. two legs. Yeah. Um, this was a fossil that was published in 2002. 2002. Wow. Um, we're coming up on 20 years now. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't see the original. I tried to see a cast of it, uh, and I was I was denied um, by the by the, the the lead scientist on the project. He says they're still studying it. Um, there's a femur that they found that's been out of the ground for a long time. Uh, very controversial set of fossils. I mean, of course they are. It's at seven million years. Of course wow. we're going to argue about this. Mm. Um, and, and he is withholding access to these fossils to, to legitimate researchers who could have moved this science forward, yeah. um, have large data sets that could be applied to these fossils. Um, and then, okay, that's the science side of it. Um, if this is it, you know, a 7 million year old ancient ancestor of humans, this is the kind of thing that should be in every classroom oh, yeah. around the world. Yes. It should be in science museums. It should be celebrated. Oh. Um, and it is incredibly difficult to get replicas of it. In fact, you can get a replica of it um, through a scientific sculpture company called Bone Clones. Um, they do make uh, legit replicas, but this one's a sculpture. Oh, okay. um, 
and and it's it's very different yes the <laughs> yeah original. original yeah <laughs> doesn't look like the original at all um and so the one i just showed you earlier this was done through photogrammetry okay. so we're reaching a point now where you can't hide fossils anymore right yes. because once you publish a few pictures of it you can import those pictures yes. using photogrammetry <laughs> and you can get a three-dimensional version of it. Now I'd never do research with this, but it's no. a much better teaching tool sure. than this one. Yes, I agree. Um, absolutely. But why, why make me go through the effort to do yeah. that? Like, why not just produce casts of this and researchers around the world would buy casts. It would support the museum in Chad. It would support research in Chad. Um, and yeah, might his ideas about this creature, Sahelanthropus, be challenged? You bet. Welcome mm. to science, right? That's <laughs> right. what happens. Yes. Um, I just don't, I don't get it. So yeah. that's one example. There are other examples, but fortunately the field is changing. Um, yes. More and more and more people are sharing their fossils, um, putting them online uh, to be printed out with a 3D printer um, and and making this more of a, of a, a science for all of us. Yes. Um, which yeah. is going to, it's going to benefit the science. That's, that's awesome. Like you said, you know, the more, I don't want to say the more hands you get on it, because you don't want to, you know, obviously don't want to handle it, <laughs> you know, but the more eyes, right. Yes. yes. The more eyes you get on it, the better Absolutely. things are. I mean, that's just, that's been proven time and time again with everything. <laughs> that's exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And again, I have some colleagues that think that the more eyes on something, you know, no, people make mistakes, people misinterpret things. No. No, that's that the scientific process ultimately weeds out bad ideas. Sure, right. And yes. we, 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 right. But good ideas, right? You need to have a variety of good ideas to choose from. Mm -hmm. And those are going to come from having lots of sets of eyes on fossils. I always tell my students that when you look at a fossil, uh, say you look at Lucy, don't assume we've got it figured out. Mm. You might spot something that no one has seen before. Sure. And this has happened to me. I had my graduate student. Uh, Ellie McNutt, uh, she's now a professor at Ohio University. Okay. We were in South Africa together and she was looking at a heel bone, an Australopithecus heel bone that I've looked at dozens of times. You know, the world's foot experts have looked at this fossil. <laughs> this fossil has been out of the ground for a long time. And she was looking at it and, you know, I was mentoring her and telling her to, you know, take photos and do drawings. And, and she said, wow, you know, look, this it's a structure on the heel called the perineal trochlea. She said, wow, look, it's, you know, it's too bad that the perineal trochlea is, is broken and, and glued on, you know, in the wrong spot. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. She's like, no, it's not. And I was like, yes, it is. It's fine. Said, no, it's not. <laughs> and I went over, you know, ab about to correct her. <laughs> and, and she was suddenly, I saw something I'd never seen before. I'd looked at this bone so many times and I had not spotted this. Fresh eyes yes. Uh, yes. spotted this, this anatomy that I hadn't, no one had. Um, and sure enough, it led to a paper and, a, and a, a, a digital correction of it. We could CT scan the bone okay. and then move that structure back where it should have been. Um, and, you know, does that change our view of human evolution? No. <laughs> but does it alter a little bit how we interpret the, the function of that bone in that particular species? Sure. Yeah, a little yeah. bit, a little bit. Um, so fresh eyes are good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I agree. 
Now, so when you were, I guess, just to get back to the book a little bit here, um, a few things, and we might have actually, I think we did, because you said a couple of things that you were surprised about, and those are some hard words for me to say. Car- Carnufix Carolinensis? Yes, Carnifex Carolinensis. <laughs> that is, that's the Carolina butcher. Okay. A 245-million-year-old crocodilian and you know it's a crocodilian because its head looks like a crocodile's (laughs) um that could run on two legs wow yeah move on two legs just a eight feet tall magnificent (laughs) magnificent creature uh discovered uh... by uh lindsey zano a paleontologist in in north carolina wow i would that would that yeah well you know though and when you were talking about those um you know what were on you know bipedal back in, in you know the dinosaur ages in a sense um mm-hmm. i guess there used to be which would be my favorite animal would be uh like a eight foot tall sloth or something oh, yeah. <laughs> i don't know if that was bipedal or not but uh so there is some evidence that they could occasionally rear up on two legs okay. um and move bipedally there are some footprints um that that demonstrate that they could do that um and they probably uh, acquired that posture when they were when they were feeding. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so they'd lift up on two legs to get higher up into the trees and use those big claws to pull down the yeah. branches and eat the vegetation. Um, really extraordinary, extraordinary beasts. I wish that, that they were still with us. <laughs> you know? yes. um, but uh, humans did coexist with them. Um, there's this marvelous footprint site in uh, New Mexico, in White Sands, New Mexico that has um, uh, where the researchers discovered these giant sloth footprints. And they look like they're doing a dance. They're moving mm-hmm. forward and back and forward and back. And um, then they cleared off the layer in front of those footprints and they were humans doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So likely it was, a, it was a hunting party. Wow. That's right. Wow. Um, so I we feel know sloths they, are my you know. spirit animals. So. <laughs> oh, I love them. They're they're just they're really special, and you yeah. know it's it's a shame they're no longer with us. Yes, but, I yeah. agree. Now the other one that you had mentioned was, and I'll try this one too. Stenerus sterlingi. That's right. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a tough one to pronounce. So that's that's the giant kangaroo. Okay. Okay. So that's that Australian kangaroo. Um, which uh, from its skeletal anatomy um, on, the, on the basis of, of, you know, big knee joints, big hip joints, some aspects of the, of the hip anatomy, um, uh, it was argued that it could, could walk on two legs rather than hop. Um, it also didn't have a large tail okay. uh, like the modern kangaroos do. Uh, and that tail is really important for controlling the body during the hopping process. And so the argument made by this researcher uh, was that was that this animal walked, walked um, yeah. and then researchers found footprints. Um, and sure enough, yeah, it was walking. <laughs> so it's a really nice validation of of a, a hypothesis that was built on the basis of the skeletal anatomy. Uh, but again, you know, it's this extraordinary ancient animal that was in Australia. So you know, imagine the very first Homo sapiens. Uh, that, who would have come to come Australia <laughs> you know, 50,000 years ago or so, yeah. they would have seen a world of bipeds. There would have been yeah. emus everywhere and <laughs> hopping kangaroos and walking kangaroos. Yeah. 
Um, but those walking kangaroos are no longer with us as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's that's a lot of that's in your book, First Steps. That's right. Yeah, how upright uh, walking made us human. Okay, good. That's right. So now you were, um, I guess you were part of the discovery of Sadiba and Naledi, huh? You were you were there. I I was very lucky. Um, yeah. I was in the right place at the right time um, to join Lieberger's team yes. with the discovery of Australopithecus Sadiba. Um, his team had already found those fossils, uh, and then um, I uh, happened to to be in South Africa. Uh, working on foot bones from those uh, from other caves in South Africa, uh, and I got to be very good friends and colleagues with um, a guy named Bern Zipfel, Bernard Zipfel, who was a former podiatrist. He got sick of fixing people's bunions, and he was always interested in fossils. And so he uh, uh, had a career change and um, started studying ancient fossil feet. Uh, of, of Australopithecus. And so yeah. when a new, and his, his faculty advisor was Lee Berger. So when Lee's uh, son and, and their, their large team ultimately discovered this new Australopithecus, uh, he needed some folks to work on the foot. Um, and of course he, you know, Bernard Zipfel was, was uh, his, his lead on it. And then um, because Bern and I had hit it off and got to be good, good buddies, um, I was invited onto the team. Wow. And and it changed my career. Um, yeah. You know, it opened my eyes to fossils that I never, sh you know, when, when, when I had finished my, my dissertation on the foot and ankle of, of, you know, early apes and early hominins, to me, an Australopithecus was an Australopithecus. They, you know, their, their foot bones were all more or less the same. Mm -hmm. um, there were some differences, but I didn't think those differences were functionally meaningful. Um, and then I had a look at Australopithecus sediba and it blew my mind. Mm. It had foot anatomy that I didn't think was possible in an early hominin. A uh, combination of derived and primitive features, uh, features you'd see in a, you know, in a chimpanzee, mm. um, but then features you'd also see in a, in a, you know, in a, in a proper Australopithecus. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I had to change kind of my my worldview on how Australopithecus uh, moved around the world and you know I, I I now recognize that there were lots of different kinds of Australopithecus walking in different ways that there were there were different forms of bipedalism existing um, throughout Africa depending on the local ecosystem and uh, depending on the frequency of climbing they were engaged in yeah. the substrate they were walking on um, so there was no you know, one right way to be a biped uh, throughout our throughout our history. Um, so being on that team, then a couple of years later, with the with the amazing discovery of Homo naledi uh, in in the Rising Star Cave uh, in South Africa, um, I was used to working on just a couple of foot bones at a time, and here we had over a hundred foot bones um, from the cave and it just, it was something else. God, that would be, you know, I, I, and again, another thing I always say, if I, if I ever discovered any type of fossil, I, I'm, I'm in, uh, like just a little bit West of Pittsburgh, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know, 20 mile West of Pittsburgh, you know? Um, so I don't know what the heck kind of fossils I've found around. I always look for fossils, but it's usually plant life that I find. And I'd love sure. that. I'm excited when I find that. <laughs> Oh yeah. If I was ever yep. to find anything, you know, other than that, I, I would, I don't even know. I would scream and cry like a little girl right. probably. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I mean, awesome. it, it, we get so excited when we find these things because yeah. they're, they're, 
they're rare. Um, and you know what what Lee Berger's team is beginning to show is that well, yes, they're rare, but if you find the right site, yeah, they don't have to be. Yes, um, yes. that we we actually can find these spots where where there are lots and lots and lots of remains, um, like with Homo naledi and with Australopithecus sediba. Yeah. Now, so do you, do you think there will ever be discoveries in let's say North America? I think we, there's something in South America. Wasn't <clears throat> something? I could be wrong about that. So the the oldest material that we have in the Americas um, is pretty controversial. Um, there there is some evidence of archaeology in South Africa, uh, South America, South America. That's about fifteen thousand years okay. old. Um, there are footprints uh, from White Sands, New Mexico, uh, that are in the ballpark of about sixteen thousand years old. Okay, um, and so that that's around the oldest. Uh, so it looks like. Uh, people from Northeast Asia um, would have been moving and it, you know, the, the end of the Pleistocene uh, would have been moving into the Bering Strait area, inhabiting the Bering Strait, moving into the Americas, moving back. You know, it wasn't a one directional thing. It wasn't sure. a singular event because um, this is complicated. So mm-hmm. there were comings and goings of these populations into the Americas um, but it looks it looks like it's you know it's definitely Homo sapiens. It's it's not any earlier hominin, um, and it's in the ballpark of about sixteen thousand years. Um, there was a paper that was published in Nature uh, several years ago of a butchery site in Sandy, just outside of San Diego, uh, where a mammoth had been, according to the researchers, had been deliberately butchered. Um, no stone tools were found. Uh, but there were damage marks to the mammoth that were consistent with butchery. Um, the date is what's shocking. Um, the date is 130,000 years old. Now, most of my colleagues and I um, think, look, it, that, that's an extraordinary claim. And extraordinary mm-hmm. claims require extraordinary evidence. Sure. So if you find some stone tools you find some hominin bones, um, then then it becomes more more uh, legitimate. But for now, with with the mammoth bones alone, might there be other explanations for how the, the bones got damaged? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so so the, the burden of proof is back on that team uh, to to find more concrete evidence of hominin occupation in in the Americas. But that would you know, that's a, that's a tenfold change mm-hmm. in when we think, and at 130,000 years, that wouldn't be Homo sapiens. Okay. Right. Huh. Homo, sapien, Homo sapiens is still in Africa and around the Mediterranean at that point. Yeah. Um, it, you know, what, what do you have in Asia at 130,000 years? You've got the Denisovans. Um, so it, you know, it, it, again, it, that, that would be a, a, a one of the biggest discoveries in the history of our science we found something like that wow. which is why as a scientist i'm skeptical i'm skeptical sure and sure. I, I think most likely this was uh, not caused by hominins yeah. and that our ancestor uh, or the first the first peoples of the americas uh did not um uh, inhabit the americas until until at most you know 18 20 000 years ago Darn it. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, you know, but that's the thing is you always, you always no, no, no. have to be open to, yes. I mean, who could have predicted Homo floresiensis yes. and, 
Um, and who even Homo Naledi with Homo Naledi, you know, one of the liberating things for me as a scientist working on that project, I didn't know how old the fossils were when I started working on them. Every other fossil I've ever worked on, I've known its age. Yeah. And when you know its age, um, I have to be, I, I, I have to accept the fact that there might be bias that creeps in. Um, it's unintentional, but if there's a really old fossil, then maybe I'm looking more at primitive features. And if it's mm -hmm. a much younger fossil, maybe I'm looking more at derived features. Okay. Um, with Homo naledi, I didn't know the age. And so I could just look at the bones and decipher the anatomy as I saw it. Hmm. Um, and it was so much fun and it was liberating to not know the age. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I would have bet my house that that was a 2 million year old hominin based wow. on based on the feet and the legs and the hips. Yeah. Um, I would have said 2 million and <laughs> I would have lost my house. I would have been, <laughs> again, I was, I was off by a factor of 10. Yeah. Um, it is, it is only a quarter of a million years old. I never would have thought that a hominin that small with that smaller brain, that primitive, uh, a hip uh, uh, complex, the shoulder girdle is very primitive, very curved fingers, very curved toes. Um, I never would have expected a hominin uh, of that uh, at a quarter of a million years um, with that anatomy in Africa. Um, so now, of course, as you said earlier, new discoveries open up new questions. So now it's, okay, who's the ancestor to Homo naledi? Sure. Um, were they coexisting with Homo sapiens on that landscape? Um, were they, you know, was, was there any, any biological exchange? Was there any cultural exchange? You know, these are things that we're going to be able to address as we, as we continue to explore the area. We're getting, I don't know how much time you have. We're, we're about at the hour mark. I, I, I had four questions, but if, if not, I have one more for you either way. Let's, let's do the one more. Okay. Yeah. So, and basically it's just, you know, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get a chance to? Was there anything that you can think of? So one of the things I tried to do in the book um, was I feel like the story of human evolution has been, has been told by um, uh, a rather limited audience. Um, it's been a lot of people that look like me. Um, it's been, you know, a lot of white males and, one of the things that I thought if I was going to do this book, um, I want to make sure that I have the voices of my colleagues as I know them and see them in the field. Um, and the field is, is a diverse field um, with many, many women um, and many uh, uh, African scientists uh, who are out there finding these fossils and doing this work. Um, and I just feel fortunate to be um, a, a participant and to be a colleague and to yeah. be able to work with them. Uh, to try to unravel this mystery of, of human origins. Um, and so in the book, um, I, I put in a lot of effort to make sure that, that the, the names and the voices of my, of my colleagues who have, have often remained voiceless in our, in our science um, actually come shining through. Um, and I hope, I, I hope I, that was successful. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see, but um, that was one of the, you know, kind of, things I wanted to do uh, with, with this book. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see if, I, if, it, if it was, was successful. Plays out. Um, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Dr. DeSilva, man, I, I honestly, I am so grateful. I'm over the moon that you 
you know, chose to take the time out of your day to sit down with me on, on the Neanderthal mind. It's, it was a fabulous, fabulous uh, conversation with you. And I, I greatly appreciate it. You this know, was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, thank I, you so I much, agree. Anthony. Thank, and thank you. you for, thank you for doing what you do. It, it's, it's awesome to, to get the word out. How, yeah. How cool However, these fossils are trying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I always tell everyone too, you know, it's, it's, I got an open door anytime you, you know, you want to come back on and talk about anything, just, just let me know. Uh, we'll get you back on. You know, I, I absolutely, without a doubt, appreciate any time you want to uh, use to, to sit down and talk with me. That'll be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the next awesome. time. All Dr. right. The Silva, thank you again. Have a good evening. And, you know, without you a too. doubt, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. Take Bye care. Now. Well, there you have it, Cave Dwellers. Without a doubt, one of the top five guests I've had the privilege and pleasure of talking with on the Neanderthal Mind. What a fascinating life to have lived thus far, and I look forward to seeing the awesome discoveries Dr. De Silva will be part of in the very near future. Well, thanks again, Cave Dwellers. I do truly appreciate your dedication to the podcast. And I hope you will join me on next episode. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast as much as we hope you have, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget, leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.